the book of Colossians, chapter 2 this morning, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed the ministry previous and the great and very, very practical truths. I, uh, I don't know how all other pastors are, but I really do enjoy preaching Friday morning at 11 o'clock. And the reason is, I figured by that time, lots of things have been preached, uh, different areas, different uh, ministry-related issues. And so by the time you come to Friday 11, you can basically preach anything you want. <laughs> and things that maybe normally you wouldn't get a chance to, and this is one of those, and for some reason, uh, praying and uh, pondering uh, what to minister, I really sensed a quickening and a stirring in this direction. Last year, we all uh, heard the news of the killing of Osama bin Laden in a covert operation that was carried out in Pakistan by the elite uh, SEAL team, and uh, reading the accounts, one item that was maybe overlooked was the huge stash of digital pornography that they discovered on the computers in Osama bin Laden's com uh, compound, which was maybe to some big news, but to me it was no surprise whatsoever. And all of the uh, accusations of hypocrisy are definitely not out of place since he and others have repeatedly accused the United States of immorality, specific reference to, the, to pornography and the sexualization of American culture. And all of that, by the way, is true. The problem is, as a nation, we've given some of our enemies a whole lot of uh, ammunition. And the reality is that America's sinfully sexualized and pornography-drenched culture has become almost cliché, but like it or not, it is the world that we live in as Christians. And I want to look at something this morning because the fallout and the impact of failure in this realm is all around us, and we will not escape it as churches. We will not escape it as a fellowship. And I want to preach on surviving sexual sin. And my approach this morning is perhaps a little bit different in that I don't want to just highlight the growing and the destructive problem both uh, within and outside of the church, but I really aim at and desire the conquering of the real tragedy that this produces, and that is the tragedy of a wasted life. 
And so read out of Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you or take you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism in which also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. I want to just uh, briefly talk about the tragedy of sexual sin because the problem of impurity is very, very real. It's all around us. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to recognize this fact that ours is a sex-saturated society and this is not just a cliche, but the comprehensive Bible word for immorality is the word pornea. And the fact is that it is everywhere. We're not just, this is not just a message about out there. This is a message also about in here. And the pornification of our culture is destroying everything and everyone in its path, not to mention the fact that we're dealing with big business. Don Carson wrote and said, more money is spent each year on porn in the USA than on alcohol, cigarettes, and illicit drugs uh, combined. It is a $96 billion a year uh, business and to lift your voice in protest against this is to be drowned out by all kinds of justification and liberal and superficial justifications and arguments. I think someone really nailed it when he said, I think, frankly, Americans are just tired of getting beat up over their resistance to it. You take a stand for Christ. You take a stand for morality. You're going to be targeted. You're going to be railed upon. And he said, I think that at a certain point, cultural fatigue sets in, and you get tired of being told that you're backward, being told that you're a troglodyte, a caveman, and a homophobe who hates people, so you shrug and say, yeah, I'm for it, and go about your business. 
And so the idol of sex is very much a part of a killer culture that is selling sex and rebellion to our children and to adults as well. Statistically, men, they say more than 50% of men, will look at sexually explicit images on the internet every month. Women, many of them, the same figures are increasing, but women, as a result, many feel insecure, They deal with all kinds of uh, rejection and feelings of unattractiveness because of their husband or their father's use uh, of pornography uh, and because of all of the advertising images today, the airbrushing uh, and the like. Many, if not most women, are dissatisfied uh, with their appearance and sadly, the promotion of sexual desire outside of God's design is a major part of mainstream culture today. And uh, what happens, like all idolatry, is it takes something very good, which is human sexuality, and it redefines the parameters in a very destructive way. And so if we could for a moment talk uh, openly and biblically, it would be helpful because God has made us sexual beings. Now you notice the amens reverberating off of the walls when you make statements like that. Uh, I don't know what he made you, but, uh, uh, but God made us sexual beings uh, and it's meant to be a wonderful thing for the binding of two people together, but he restricted it to the context of lifelong marriage and sexual, and, uh, sexual fidelity, and he did this for our good. God made everything, and the Bible says he saw that it was very good, And as I preach this morning, the fact is, we all feel the pull towards immorality. Now, you are giving me your very, very best Friday morning Cape Cod seminar spirituality look, but I know exactly what I'm preaching on. I said, we all, just for a healthy exercise, say all. Okay, so you don't have to nod your head or amen or anything. You've already put yourself in this message. (laughs) That pull to satisfy legitimate desires in a sinful way, every one of us uh, have felt the struggle to honor the Lord Jesus Christ with our hearts and with our minds and with our bodies. And a lot of people single this out and uh, ignorantly say, you know what, that's all you Christians do. All you Christians do uh, is rail uh, on sexuality. And hey, after all, isn't all sin, sin? And yes, theologically, that is true. All sin is ultimately sin against God. But the Bible singles out immorality as well. 
1 Corinthians 6.18, run from sexual sin. No other sin clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. The message uh, paraphrase there's a, says there is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love for becoming one with one another. And so it is singled out uh, and uh, not because of God's inability to forgive, but it is singled out because of our ability to recover. You have all of the recent high-profile cases of sexual failure and philandering from recently our Secret Service agents in Colombia to the whole fiasco of Tiger Woods to Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and just like David lamented the death of Jonathan and King Saul, how are the mighty fallen? And I don't know about you, but when I read things like this, I don't read them gloating. I don't read them thinking, my, how could they possibly do that? No, I am reading it as a warning from the Holy Spirit to me. And the jury in all of these cases is still out, but you can make the argument in some of these high-profile cases uh, that they are never again the same. But there's a deeper tragedy that I really want to home in on. And that is the dream-destroying quality of sexual sin. Our text, while not dealing explicitly with this subject, begins with the statement, see to it that no one takes you captive. And the tragedy is not just sexual sin. The tragedy I have in mind is the tragic number of young people who at one point in their lives dreamed of radical obedience to Jesus Christ, were willingly obedient to, to lay down their lives for Christ, but now have faded into uselessness. And the number one reason why young people are not passionately involved in reaching the world for Christ is sexual sin. Number one. One man wrote and said, so many young people are being lost to the cause of Christ's mission because they are not taught how to deal with the guilt of sexual failure. The problem is not just how not to fail. The problem is how to deal with failure so that it doesn't sweep away your whole life into wasted mediocrity with no impact for Christ. And right here is the real tragedy that Satan uses guilt from sexual failures to strip people 
of every radical dream they've had for God and for the purposes of God. This gnawing sense of guilt or unworthiness over sexual failure that gradually gives way in people's lives to a loss of vision, a sense of powerlessness, a loss of a passion for Christ, so that now we're just simply, sometimes if we remain in church, we're simply content with substitutes. One man wrote and said, a major besetting sin in the youth of America is sexual immorality. Now the tragedy isn't that young people are giving their bodies to lusts and sensual pleasures before marriage. Don't be mistaken, this is tragic indeed, but the real tragedy is what happens to the person's life after that. The lies that young Christians believe about themselves and their destiny. I shudder to think about how many once radical Jesus followers have succumbed to, quote, an ordinary Christian life due to guilt or shame that came from some kind of sexual mistake, making them think that they could never live radically again for God. Let's pray this generation to believe the truth about their identity in Christ and walk boldly in it, and let's tell the devil to go to hell with his lies. What we are looking at is the devil's double whammy. It is to, first of all, tempt us uh, into sin uh, and then to trap us uh, in guilt and condemnation uh, and hopelessness. Let me just comment right here. I'm not preaching this because I am privy to any information whatsoever. None. But I understand, I have observed, I have dealt with people uh, that as a result they come, become trapped in this mindset uh, and so the attitude becomes, well, you know, maybe I'll go to church so now I might as well just go out and buy the biggest widescreen uh, TV I can buy. And the aim in all of this uh, is the devil's weapon to exploit the sin in your life, uh, to take you out uh, so that you end up wasting your life uh, and are lost to the cause of Jesus Christ. So let's talk secondly about the God who makes a way. Because there are some larger lessons here. Uh, you... Many of you have read the epistle to the Corinthian church, and you know that one of the things that the city of Corinth was notorious for was immorality. That affected not just the city, but the church as well. And I made reference in another aspect yesterday, but... Uh, I'm very interested, Paul writing to this church, what he does is he doesn't ignore the real moral and relational problems that are involved here, but as Paul writes to the Corinthians, the first thing he does is he brings them back to the gospel to the death and resurrection of Christ uh, that alone rescues her humanity from immorality and from every other sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, do you not know 
that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And you will find this structure in practically every New Testament epistle uh, is the very first thing uh, that they deal with is doctrine. Very first thing they emphasize is the truth of the gospel. And on that foundation, they begin to deal with the aspects of practical Christian living. If you do not get the first right, if you don't have a grasp on the first, the second becomes very difficult. And what we find is the ballast that comes from knowing Jesus Christ For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, that the answer to sin's guilt and sin's bondage is the fullness of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 and verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh. And it is a growing knowledge, it is a growing experience of Jesus Christ, the fullness that is in him that enables us to conquer sin. Listen to one little poem. It said, He is a path if any be misled. He is a robe, if any naked be, if any chance to hunger, he is bread, if any be a bondman, he is free, if any be but weak, how strong is he, to dead man life he is, to sick man health, to blind man sight, and to the needy wealth. See, it is the fullness of Christ. It is growing in that fullness, the result of which is that sin and its attractiveness begins to lose not only its appeal, but its hold on people's lives. And here in Colossians chapter 2, Paul sets forth three things that really are foundational to Christ's fullness, very basic, but three things he sets forth, one In verses 11 and 12 is the spiritual work of God in bringing us new life. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which also you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Very simply, he's saying, in Christ, we died to that former way of life. In Christ, we were buried and we were raised to a new way of living. Romans 6, verse 7, we know that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. I read yesterday one prominent preacher was asked one of the keys to his success. Uh, and he said, every day I get 220 volts zapped through me. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, uh, and uh, the reality that I am dead to sin but alive to God through Jesus Christ. That when the devil comes knocking, uh, you can say, you know what? That old man, that old woman, that person, they are dead to sin. Uh, they are no longer alive to it, but now I'm alive to Jesus Christ. The second foundation is the radical forgiveness that releases us from guilt. Say, Pastor, why, why not preach this to sinners? Because I have discovered that Christians need the gospel preached to them just as much as sinners. Verse 13, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made a lie together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed, us to, nailed it to the cross. He's speaking about the record of debt that was against us. How many have ever been living under the horribly oppressive weight of debt? He's talking about the huge stacks uh, of IOUs that every one of us uh, have accumulated in our lives, that what Jesus did on the cross is he took all of those IOUs, uh, all of our debt, uh, all of our sins, all of the accusation against us, uh, and he folded it in two, he nailed it to the cross, uh, and he wrote across it, paid in full. J.B. Phillips wrote, He has forgiven you uh, all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads, and he has completely annulled it by nailing it over the, our, his own head on the cross. The radical forgiveness that releases us from guilt. I was reading Martin Luther a testimony and an incident that occurred in his life. One night he had a, just a horrible, troubling dream. How many of you have one of those vexing dreams that, you know, in the morning you feel just, am I saved? And, I, you know, I've told people, listen, you just got to wake up in the morning and say, devil, you are a liar. I was asleep. I, I had nothing to do with this. You can get lost. And he woke up uh, feeling that way, and this dream, he was visited by the devil who brought him a record uh, of his own life uh, and all of his failures and all of his sins. And the tempter said to him, is that true? Did you do that? Did you write it? Luther was terrified, but he had to confess it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled, uh, and at length, uh, he said, the evil one prepared to take his departure, having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of abject misery. Suddenly, the reformer turned to the tempter and said, it's true, 
every word of it, but right across it, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. The third foundation is the power of deliverance from unseen spiritual foes. Verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, uh, triumphing over them in it. And many of you know this is a picture of a victory parade that would accompany a significant military triumph where at the end of this parade, the end of this procession, came all of the defeated foes, uh, all of the demonic powers arrayed against Christ uh, and against his church. Uh, the Bible says in the cross he has triumphed uh, over all of them, making an open spectacle uh, of each one of them. And the reality is, yes, evil still exists. Uh, we still feel the pull of temptation from time to time, but those things are defeated. They are defeated foes. And none of this is an excuse. None of this is a license to go on sinning. If that's your mentality, you have no real grasp of the gospel. But the distinguishing mark of saving faith is not perfection. The mark is I am still fighting. Not with fists, not with bullets or bombs, but with the truth of Jesus Christ. And holding fast to these truths is a tremendous weapon against the devil that can nullify the lies he uses to strip you of any hope for a meaningful future and destiny in God. So let me close and talk briefly about silencing the enemy. This is what's so good about God who is both wonderful in counsel and excellent in working. That the answer is not uh, stricter rules and stronger willpower. I appreciate what our brother said about that egg and where you put the pressure. But the answer is giving Christ his rightful place on the throne of your heart. Just to give you something to chew on, read sometimes Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy of Christ. And in that genealogy, you'll find four women, all of whom had some kind of sexual stain or sexual stigma. And, you know, there could have been plenty of other dynamic and godly women listed in that genealogy, but these four, Tamar and Ruth and Rahab the harlot, are mentioned specifically in the genealogy of Christ because God is able to transform people's lives and use them for his glory. 
and God makes provision, and this is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. See, the reality is every other religion has no answer for failure. And sometimes, you know, we're afraid to address and preach on failure because we think if we do, we're somehow giving people a license to go fail. But the reality is, you'd be surprised how many people sit in every congregation feeling this horrible weight of failure that I will never measure up and I will never have a meaningful future. And how the enemy uses that against them in some very effective ways. And the promise that God gives this morning is the promise, I will rise. Say that this morning. I will rise. You know, I was dealing with this and wrestling with this. If I could be perfectly honest this morning, because the purpose of our Bible conferences is not just to try to dazzle people with how spiritual we are. But I can tell you honestly that there are a number of things in the ministry I really, really do not like to deal with. And one of them is the tragedy and the fallout of sexual sin. I hate dealing with it. Doesn't mean I don't. But I hate dealing with it because there's so much release. There's so much that uh, is uh, at work. And you won't just simply come, you know, riding in and put a little Band-Aid on this and then go riding out and everything's fine. And I have found that just as important as it is to uphold the standards of holiness and righteousness, it is just as important to be able to give people hope in the midst of failure. I preached a sermon recently that was called, Don't Blow It Because You Blew It. <laughs> and it was very interesting to me because there are times that pastors like to get together and make sermons, and I told them, well, you know, I've got a couple of ideas, and, and, and uh, I just mentioned the title of this. I had the title before I had the entire message. And to a man, every pastor that I talked to about that immediately said, that's what I want to work on. Because I understand the dynamics that are at work in people's hearts and people's lives. And so in the midst of all of this, I'm struggling and trying to uh, give a right answer that will instigate repentance and initiate the process of restoration. And I came across some words in the book of Micah that I've never really written, uh, written uh, read rather, or studied in any kind of detail. Micah 7, verses 8 and 9 says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me he will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. 
And I would say to anyone that has found themselves in any kind of failure or specifically in the wake of sexual failure to take these words and memorize and meditate upon them because listen to the message that's there. He says, first of all, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. Because the only one that rejoices when people fail is the devil. There there are some warped Christians, I guess, that take perverse delight when somebody else falls because they somehow think that that adds to their stature. But listen, the only one rejoicing when we fall or fail is the devil. And so he says, rejoice not over me, O my enemy. In other words, you rejoice over my failure, and you think you can keep me down, but that is not the end of the story. Think again. When I fall, I shall rise. In other words, yes, I have fallen. I hate what I've done. I grieve at the dishonor I've brought to my king and to my family But hear this, O my enemy, I will rise again. When I sit in darkness, the Lord shall be a light to me. In other words, yes, I am sitting in the darkness of my own making. And I feel miserable. I feel guilty because I am guilty. But that's not the whole truth. The same God who makes my darkness is a sustaining light in that very darkness, and he will not forsake me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He's saying, yes, there is a price to pay. But the very one who is indignant with me I will bear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Because I have sinned against him. The very one who's indignant with me, who hates my sin, still loves the sinner and will plead my cause. And ultimately, he is for me and not against me, which means I have a future in him. And finally, he says, he will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication the misery that I feel now because of my failure, I will bear as long as God ordains. And I know this for sure, that God will bring me out to the light. I will look upon his righteousness, and he will be my vindication. See, learning to deal with failure learning to to deal with the guilt of sexual failure with this kind of broken-hearted boldness, with this kind of theology, makes Christ exceedingly precious and deals with all of the destructive distortions that sin brings. Someone said, my greatest help in Christ is that moment by moment, I can pass my distresses over to him. Here's my point. It is in no way to make light of sexual failure. 
or sexual sin. It is to say that with a repentant heart and with the truth of God's word, radical discipleship is still an option for you. Satan cannot, unless you allow him, destroy the dream of a life, live for Christ, and God's purpose for your life while you're on this planet. He cannot destroy that if there is a repentant heart and if we will take the truth of God's word. I've made it a habit and I am glad this doesn't happen all the time, but I will say to pastors, you ought to write down and print out that scripture because I've looked across the desk at people in the midst of some very bad decisions and some very tragic failure and said, I want to go through the word of God because you're going to need this. You're going to have to hold on to this. There's going to be a period of darkness where you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you can take the promises of God's word and armed with that and looking to Jesus and to Jesus alone, you can overcome and your life can still make a difference for Christ, and radical discipleship is still an option for your life. And so this is not just about how bad or how pervasive certain things are. We live, as I said, in a sexualized culture. You can't escape it. And if you're going to preach the gospel, you will deal with people who have failed. You will deal with people who bear the scars of that failure, the brokenheartedness of that failure, and the devil's design is to take brokenhearted people and so distort that that they feel they have no hope whatsoever in their life, in their relationships and in their future who have a hard time thinking beyond lunchtime much less thinking two or three or four years down the road but the truth of God's word this morning in the gospel how many know we preach a good gospel I hope as a pastor you're preaching a good gospel it's not a gospel that overlooks, and it's not a gospel that makes light of things, but it's a gospel that tells the truth, but with the truth sets forth God's plan and God's means of restoration and deliverance. And let me just close by reading that verse one more time, Micah 7, verses 8 and 9. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until... You say, Pastor, how long is it going to take for restoration? Hey, as long as it takes, until... He pleads my cause 
and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. The gospel this morning answers to the strategy of the devil, which is to destroy the possibility of radical discipleship in the lives of young people, basically the lives of anyone, young or old, but to destroy those dreams. The gospel answers that in order to give hope and in order to restore. I want you to bow your heads this morning. We're going to pray.